0: saying that we cannot escape to the idea that God is using suffering to justly punish those who deserve it. For in point of fact, some rather wicked people seem to completely get away with it in this world, and some pretty nice people seem to have a terrible time.
1: Welcome to The God-Centered Life with Josh Moody. Fascinating study in the book of Judges. We're continuing into chapter 6 today. We're calling this study risk Faith in the series called Get Over Yourself. Josh Moody is Senior Pastor of College Church in Wheaton, Illinois, and I'm Todd Bastide. Thanks for joining us today. Josh, we're talking about doubt. And as our opening soundbite alludes to, suffering is one of the quandaries that causes folks to doubt God. But we're framing Gideon as a doubter?
0: Well, he ends up a great hero, and he's, he's known throughout church history. And if you know much about the Bible, you've come across the, the great Gideon. And yet mm-hmm. when you dig into this passage, you realize how he wrestles with doubts and has wrong thinking and, and vacillates at times. And, and uh, yet, of course, God uses him. So it's a, it's a corrective to our interpretation, but it's also an inspiration for our own vacillations.
1: Looking forward to hearing this uh, perspective shift on Gideon. Judges chapter 6. Here's Josh.
0: Well, friends, do you turn with me to Judges chapter 6? Well, here's the thing when you read a passage like this, which uh, with Gideon is so familiar to church going folk, we think we know what it's about before we even give it half a moment's extra thought. We've heard so many stories about Gideon, we've been told so many times that he's an excellent biblical hero that we are to emulate and all that kind of thing and of course in some way he is. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 11 he's described as a as a hero of faith and you know there is all of that but of course the point of Gideon is that he began as such a man of doubt and uh, as such I can think of a few more relevant parts of the Bible than the passage we have in front of us to modern, modern life, to modern man and woman who is so full of doubt about God. And I guess there are some worthy souls who appear never to doubt, but I suspect that there are none which, in fact, never do. And uh, those of us who manage to be really honest with ourselves in this contemporary world with all its confusion and challenges inevitably face doubts. Perhaps uh, you are not a Christian here this morning, and you are wondering how on earth can someone in the 21st century still believe in all this supernatural God stuff? Well, actually I think this story of Gideon is gonna help you with that, God willing. But also, if you are a Christian here this morning, it will help you not just be real about any doubts you may have, and not only be prepared to deal with doubts if they come, in the future, but experience as Gideon did in this wonderful story as he moves from one stage to the other as the Lord moves him through his doubts. Experience the God who is simply irresistibly believable. God, we will find here, is so faithful. It's hard not to trust. And that's true even if, like Gideon, you are currently in the storms of, I don't know what kind of uncertainty it might be. What kind of doubt it might be that you're going through? Why is God doing this? Whatever it is. You wonder perhaps whether God exists at all. Or even more scarily, you wonder if he does exist, what kind of God would it be who's putting you through whatever it is that you're going through? Of course, for many, it is the issue of suffering that causes such common doubt about the goodness of God. The uh, French philosopher Voltaire expressed profoundly the powerful feelings of many when in uh, reflection on the disastrous earthquake that took place in uh, in Lisbon in 1755, he wrote this very profound novel called Candide, satirical, sarcastic, but, uh, but deep, questioning, Any idea that this world is, uh, as as the phrase was at the time, in the sort of positive thinking mantra at the time, the best of all possible worlds. How could you possibly say, he he, he asked, that this is the best of all possible worlds? A bit like that uh, book that's on the stores these days called The Secret, which has this idea that somehow we're magnets, and if we have enough positive thinking inside, we will attract good stuff to us. Well, how how can you say that, Voltaire was saying, with, think of Katrina. Or a tsunami. But see, Voltaire also used it to attack what at the time was the, uh, the Roman Catholic religious explanation, which is that the earthquake was an expression of God's wrath against the people of Lisbon, who were therefore worse than other people. And so Voltaire penned this poem right after the earthquake, before he, he got to this, this novel, Candide. these words. And can you then impute a sinful deed to babes who on their mother's bosoms bleed? Was there more vice in fallen Lisbon found than Paris, where voluptuous joys abound? Was less debauchery to London known, where opulence luxurious holds the throne? Good questions. Is Baghdad worse than Las Vegas? Is that why they're getting in the neck? After the, uh, the trauma and the tragedy in Manhattan with the towers and everything like that, uh, uh, was London better than Manhattan? Is that why it escaped? So, such a terrible thing at the time? Relatively not such a big disaster later with the terrorist attacks that they experienced in, in July a few years later? Is Lisbon worse than Paris? Baghdad than Las Vegas? See, what Voltaire is doing, as I say, it's profound. That's why it's a long time ago, but that's why I mentioned this morning, is that he's saying that we cannot escape to the idea that God is using suffering to justly punish those who deserve it. For, in point of fact, some rather wicked people seem to completely get away with it in this world, and some pretty nice people seem to have a terrible time. But, of course, Voltaire uh, was not the first to notice that. Jesus asked about a tower of Siloam that had fallen and crushed people at his time and was interpreted uh, by his contemporaries as a sign of judgment on those who had died. Jesus asked, were they worse sinners uh, who were crushed by this tower of Siloam? Were they worse sinners than, than you because you didn't die? Question mark? I tell you no, Jesus said. But unless you repent... You too will perish. And that's, you see, the Christian point of view as Jesus articulates it. That we live in a world where the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. That we are all sinners and all need to accept the salvation of Christ. And so, and so there's that, isn't it? That kind of doubt. But still, even if you can't frame it intellectually, suffering remains as this issue or that issue that's going on in your life. And it's simply painful and questionable. And as we look at how Gideon struggled with his situation, with the Midianites coming in like like hordes of bandits destroying his land. And how he was moved through that to a point of faith. I hope it will help you with your doubts, perhaps. But of course, doubts come in many different kinds of colors and shapes and sizes. and, And in a town like ours, it is intellectual doubts that predominate for many. How can I believe in God and dot, the dot, fit in the blank. How can I believe in God and be a scientist? How can I believe in God and be a historian? How can I believe in God and practice medicine with all the complexity of medical ethics and what have you? And if that's you, uh, with intellectual doubts... Gideon will help you too, not because this passage addresses, you know, how you interpret Genesis chapter 1, the like of modern science, or 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 redaction criticism, or, or medical ethics, or what have you, but because it gets beyond all of that to the core issue. The core issues and addresses those, addresses that. Others, of course, doubt for more personal reasons. They have been hurt, and they feel inadequate. They do not bear the mark of the adult who was loved as a child, but the adult who was neglected as a baby. And for them, trust never comes easy. Well, if that's you, I believe that Gideon will really help. See, what we have here is not uh, just the sort of heroic Gideon who got everything right. No, what we have here actually is how not to overcome doubt. For Gideon displays all his weaknesses for us to see in glorious technicolor everything that he got wrong. And yet,
1: God overcomes all those doubts to grant him faith. The parade of Gideon's doubts begins momentarily and more importantly, a chance for us to examine ours But first, a quick reminder that you're listening to The God-Centered Life with Josh Moody, Senior Pastor of College Church located in Wheaton, Illinois. We'll tell you how to get resources, additional studies, and other things to help your devotional growth in just a few moments. But right now, let's jump back in and see what we can learn about Gideon. Here's Josh.
0: First then, how not to overcome doubt. In the first kind of way, we're going to see here, it's really verse 11. Verse 11. And the first one is, you don't overcome doubt with defeatist thinking or defeatist theology. And so uh, the angel of the Lord, verse 11, can you see it? Uh, comes to visit Gideon. And uh, you immediately get a sense of the kind of person that, that Gideon was, don't you? Because as you look down there, you can see that he's threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Well, you, you know what that means, don't you? That the wine press would have been hidden in the ground, you see. And, and so he's keeping this precious food out of the sight of the marauding Midianites. You know, and if anyone sees any kind of activity going on, they'll just think, oh, well, it's just—it's it's not the staple diet, wheat, you know, something else going on. He, he's hiding. It's, it's hardly the kind of get-up-and-go-in-your-face mighty warrior that he gets called, but that is what he will become because of God overcoming his doubts nonetheless. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior, verse 12, you know, hiding in a hole. And then look at Gideon's response. But but, sir? He does this actually twice. He tries to wriggle out of God's call over and over again, but he does this particular way twice. But sir, and then verse 15 again, but sir, is exactly the same phrase in the original. But Lord, translated in the New International Version, but sir, but sir, but sir, hold on here, where are you going? I'm not sure I like this. And the first excuse, you see, he looks for To not do what God's telling him to do is actually in his theology. And that may rather surprise you, but but it's very often the case. You know, God, you want me to love my enemy? Hey God, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, remember? And that's exactly what, what, what Gideon's doing. If the Lord is with us. You know, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Well, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders? The Lord has abandoned us, clearly. Defeatist thinking, defeatist theology, to prevent him to to, to actually have to put risk faith in God. Now, it is partly an echo of, of the words that the prophet who had been sent by the Lord to speak to the Israelites just beforehand had said. Yes, it is partly an echo of those words, but but actually what the prophet has said is they have left God, not God has left them. You have not kept the covenant, the prophet said. And so this is why all these things have happened. But Gideon takes that and turns it into, hey, don't ask me to help people keep the covenant because God has left us, remember, you know? He's turning conviction into defeat. What's it like? It's like if your favorite sports team is doing really well. I don't know, the Yankees are absolutely thrashing the Red Sox or whatever it is. And, uh, and so you're, you're really supporting them and you buy an extra ticket just to go down and see them. You, you take you know, your whole family and several friends because so they're doing so well, right? And you get to the ballpark and they have exactly the same team on the pitch as beforehand and yet when you're watching they do lousily. They all strike out and, you know, they lose terribly. I guess, you know, we've all had that experience when we support sports teams, right? And, and then, you know, there's the sort of Monday morning quarterback when, when everyone tries to analyse what went wrong uh, at the weekend. And, uh, and what, you, what you discover when you listen to, to the programme about it is that actually in the dressing room beforehand, no one was in the right mood. They just weren't up for it. They couldn't quite be bothered, or they'd been analyzing and thinking about the, the great new star pitcher on the opposition team, and so they just kind of got freaked out by it, you know, and they, they'd lost the game in their mind before they even went onto the ballpark at all. Defeatist thinking. A classic example of this sort of defeatist uh, attitude or theology is uh, how the great missionary. William Carey tried to persuade his denomination to back him in taking the gospel to India and was infamously told, young man, sit down. When God wants to convert the heathen, he'll do it without any help from you or me. Defeatist theology. It's taking a good principle, God's sovereignty over all the nations of the world, yes, and then using it to mask the real issue, which is lack of faith. So you ask yourself, "Well, what does this mean? Well, partly, of course, it means that you need to be careful what you put in your mind because it will influence all of your life. What sort of TV programs, what is shaping the internal landscape of your imagination? Of course, we can't avoid less than perfect information in this world, but what you can do is kind of have a a finely tuned mesh, as it were, in between your eyes and, and, and your mind so that you sieve out the rubbish and just hold on to what is good. So Paul writes the young man, Timothy, saying, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Watch what's going in. But you see, that's not just about, you know, don't watch explicit movies. It's it's also... Be more careful how your thinking is getting formed in terms of what you believe about God. If you have the wrong set of beliefs about God, it's going to be easy for you to end up doubting him or getting defeatist as Gideon did here. Look at it in terms of the cross. We worship a crucified Lord, but we worship a risen Lord too. Jesus is no longer on the cross. He is not defeated. He is victorious. He has sent His spirit. The kingdom has come. True, Jesus is still to come again. And there is pain and suffering in this world. The darkness is dark, but the light is shining now. And and we are not to back down because of of a depressed or defeatist attitude when God comes knocking at our door. So no defeatist theology or thinking if you want to overcome doubts. Second, how not to overcome doubt is with overdeveloped sense of personal inadequacy like like Gideon had here but God took him through it nonetheless and this is verse 15 again but Lord or but sir for the second time my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family now perhaps this was true Though we find later that his family has a goat, enough flour to make bread, two bulls, which would suggest a larger herd of cows, and at least ten servants, and probably more from which those ten were selected, all of which in a time of famine would reveal no little uh, amount of resources for Gideon and his family. But, uh, And it's also possible that the translation mighty warrior earlier actually refers in the original to a kind of aristocracy of the time. But even if Gideon's protests are true, that he is a little guy from a little family and all that, he protests too much. For the Lord has just said, verse 40, am I not sending you? And that should have been enough for a man of faith that God himself was sending him. But Gideon, comfortingly for all us who likewise doubt, was looking at his own perceived inadequacies. And that led him to doubt God. You've um, probably heard of Stephen Hawking, uh, you know, the Cambridge physicist who's a a paraplegic, wheelchair-bound, brilliant scientist, Stephen Hawking. Um, Recently, uh, Hawking uh, took a flight into zero gravity to experience weightlessness. Well, this would be a little like, you see, sort of Hawking kind of saying, when the opportunity came for him to float out of his wheelchair, hey, no, I'm paralyzed. You know, I've got a wheelchair, you see, I can't get up. I've had one for years. There's no cure. I can't get out of this. I am personally inadequate. Right? But Of course, Hawking knows his science and trusts the specially modified plane and the engineers and the pilots and all of that. And, and, and so, so the issue was not how paralyzed did Gideon feel in his own life. The issue was not at all who Gideon was, whoever he was. Or how wheelchair bound his inadequacies he may or may not have been. The issue was who God was and what God had told him to do. So those of uh, those of you who are Christians here then need to realise that there is a difference between true humility, which is God focused, and a kind of false modesty, which is self focused. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 3, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But he does not say, blessed are those who beat up on themselves forever and ever and ever, does he? It, you know, it's about those who realize that spiritually speaking they are impoverished and therefore look up to God for saving. You see, sometimes churches sort of collectively get into a negative mode of figuring out all the time what's wrong with themselves. They don't have a very good this or that. This ministry or whatever it is is somewhat subpar. And there's a place for realism in church life too, yeah. But the constant discussion of, you know, what's wrong with us this week, it can become a complete waste of energy and is a waste of energy. Instead, we should focus on what's right with God. And out of that God-focused humility, instead of a, a false self-focused, sort of false modesty, out of that focus comes the vision that gives us all the excitement and purpose to church. So we don't look around at our Bible study group and say, there are seven people here last week, and this week there are only five. How to press it, you know? We look at God, and that he sent you to do that. First of our core commitments as a church puts it like this. We are committed to the glory of Christ more than anything or anyone else. The glory of Christ is the measure of our success and the purpose of our endeavor. Well, if you're not a Christian here, (laughs) I want you to realize that moral or personal sense of inadequacy or failure is no excuse for not becoming a Christian. In fact, recognition of moral and personal failure is essential before you can be accepted by God. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. God delights to to take the weak things of this world and shape them into something wonderfully, morally beautiful. Gideon, you see, should have looked at his personal inadequacy and gone, oh yes, I'm a complete failure and totally unlikely person for this task. So of course God's going to use me so he gets all the glory. I see. And so in a sense, non-Christian, face up to your failure. You have not kept your own rules, let alone God's be real with that. It's the first step to finding faith. You repent, and then you believe in
1: Jesus. That's Josh Moody, and this is The God-Centered Life. Defeatist theology, personal inadequacies, are our first two doubt feeders, if you will. So, wrapping this session, you were reminding us that God delights in using the weak things. Josh, I got to believe that's potentially very encouraging to those of us who wrestle with inadequacies.
0: Yeah, and I, I suppose it's all of us, isn't it, really? Hmm. Some of us are better at hiding it than others. But then when you see someone who looks super hyper confident, you can be pretty sure that when they look in the mirror in the morning, they don't feel like that. Uh, so, yeah, I think it is an encouragement, isn't it? And it's a, an inspiration. We can make excuses, can't we? We can hmm. say, you know, I'm too weak. I only have one talent or two talents. There's not much I can do. I, no, well, we have a, an all-powerful, loving, but omnipotent God, and through trust in him, even the weak things as well can be greatly used as uh,
1: has been proven over and over and over again. And numerous times in the book of Judges alone. Mm-hmm. Unlikely heroes is right. what we've been talking about right. recently. Thank you, Josh. Our first two doubt feeders, check, check. And we have two more coming up next time. We hope you're going to join us for that. We hope you're enjoying this study in the book of Judges. It's one of the many studies that are accessible via our website. That web address is GodCenteredLife.org. Earlier installments in this Judges study are there. Other studies as well, New Testament, Old Testament, it's all God's Word, and it's all important. And so we want to make it available to you. Now, the most recent studies are available right there on our website, but then you can drill down into our archives, and perhaps if you're working through a particular book, you can find a study that aligns with that. We would love for you to tap into some of the resources and work that Josh has done around different portions of God's Word. The web address, GodCenteredLife.org. That's also where you can connect with us. There's a contact page. We'd love to hear where you're interacting with our studies, how they're helping you, and any feedback from you is going to be very encouraging to us. The web address again, GodCenteredLife.org. Next time we get together, the right kind of fear. Fear that does not lead to
0: faithful obedience is not fear of God, really. It is fear of consequences. So don't be frightened of your doubts.
1: Be frightened of God, and that will lead you to faithful obedience. We're going to continue our look at the book of Judges in chapter 6. GodCenteredLife.org resources for you. And this is your warm invitation to join us when we next gather around God's Word here at the God-Centered Life with Josh Moody.